This is the Andrew Lake Podcast, and today I'm speaking with Simon Millman. Simon Millman. Here we are. Hello. Hi, how are you? Say hello, Simon. Hello. So today on the agenda, we've got a critique of integral theory. Simon's got beef with holons, so I hear, which is quite all right. Mm. Like to hear about that. What else have we got? Music. Music. We're going to talk about music today. I think we should talk about music, Mm. considering that the entire universe is music. Yeah, I got beef with that too. What, with that philosophy or with music? Yeah, all of it. You got beef with everything? Pretty much. That's what I like to hear. Let's bring it on. Yeah. Let's beef it up. If I was going to quit this podcast and start my own one, I would call it the beef with everything. Beef with everything. Beef with a lot. Yeah, beef with a lot. (laughs) That's right. Oh, we've already started with cheesy puns. Mm. Oh, it's turned into a cheeseburger now, has it? Cheeseburger with a lot. All right, I'm going to throw a couple of radish slices into that shit. <laughs> what is radish? It's a red like vegetable. Beetroot? Yeah, but with the white. I haven't had beetroot in so white. long, man. It's got white meat. We should also make this a bit of a get-to-know Simon. No, no, we shouldn't. You are. What are you? I am largely water. Don't hold that against me. Biologically, chemically speaking. Chemically speaking. Okay, but what are you philosophically? What are you conceptually? Don't know. A, a collection of baryonic matter in existing in four dimensions. Four dimensions? Well, three plus time. Three plus time. I like this uh, poster that you've got on the studio wall. Oh, yeah. I, I always talk to you about this. <laughs> Because I think it's great. It's this uh, this cosmology sort of thing, which has all these stars and planets and universes. And somewhere at the end, there's this little arrow, which is pointing to a speck of dust. And it's like, that's us. So is that? am I right in interpreting that poster? Is that what's going on there? Or Yeah. Sort of? Yeah, I guess so. I guess essentially. But if you zoomed in on that, the speck of dust in the poster... And puffed and could puff it right out into poster size. It would reveal another poster, the exact same poster. And I guess that's multiverse theory, isn't it? Multiverse theory. Mm. Mm. I'm not familiar with multiverse theory. Yeah. What are you listening to these days? Someone put me onto a fun '60s or '70s compilation called Halloween Nuggets, which is pretty. You know, all songs about the Wolfman and stuff like that. Is it a satire? No, no, no. Oh, so it's real music? Oh, yeah. Oh. I'm just used to you feeding me satire. No, no. <laughs> Not today. That's all good. Mm. I'm heaps into this Bark CD. Oh, yeah. It's pretty straight ahead. Okay. And I tried to publish the uh, Keith Jarrett conversation we had, but yep. right as my finger was like over the publish button on the computer yep manfred eicher jumped out with his german accent 
and like started, <laughs> you yeah. know, he just he just wouldn't have it. He's the producer of uh, Keith Jarrett. Yeah. So I think he's got some beef with the copyright of. Right. What about publishing? F- fair use, mate. Fair use. Fair game. Well, I'm not making any money of it. So yeah. well, that is that fair? fair? <laughs> yeah. Well, Keith isn't either. And, you know, two zeros on either side of an equation. Well, you could just cancel those out, couldn't you? So, yeah. So, in my eyes, that's fair. Mm. And we're talking about how great he was. Great he, he is. Yeah. We were trying to say he was the Hi, greatest. Keith. Keith, yeah. Thanks, mate. For yeah. Thanks for the bashing tunes, us. The memories. Well, thanks for not letting us play your bloody tunes in mp3 format because you're such a purist Mm. i do actually sort of feel a bit guilty about that playing things in mp3 format talking is all right yeah i don't mind listening to talking but actual music is yep one of the things that i struggle with i mean i wanted to i want to present music on this podcast yep but not all of it translates well into mp3 yep and of course you have varying degrees of compression in mp3 Mm. You can have stuff that's really squashed. So you are my latest victim of Keith... Uh, sorry, not Keith Jarrett. Right. You're an old-time victim of Keith Jarrett. But you're my latest victim of Ken Wilber. So discovering Ken Wilber, for some people, is like discovering Jesus. So when you discover Jesus, you say, Oh, it's amazing. It explains everything. And I found this book that explains everything. We need to cherish this book and read this book and study this book. Let's mull over this book. Mm. And then you say, oh, to all your friends, oh, you've got to check out this book. You've got to read this book. It's amazing. Yeah. Oh, he's coming at me with all these bloody, you know, what's he doing? He's got like five of them. He's talking about lines and streams and holons. And so I was like this to you. And I was like, man, you've got to check out this theory. And I lent you, a, what is it? A Brief History of Everything. Mm. So that's meant to be the popular introduction. That's like the, mm. the basic introduction to integral theory. Right. But, but you didn't, it didn't take, did it? Or you don't really, you're not really that into it? No, not really. I found it a bit uh, hubristic, I would say. Hubristic. Hubristic. Mm. That is to say that... Well, it seems like an interest, some interesting ideas. You know, you've got to decipher all this stuff to get at the ideas. And yeah, I guess I'm saying that the stuff came across as you know, a bit of a waste of time. Like that, you know, I just wanted to get to the ideas. I didn't want to learn about here we go about holons and you know all these other things that I don't know just seemed to be as much about the structure of the system as it was about, you know, what it, what it does and what it's for and whatever. So Um, you're saying it was a creation of a system that was used to, you know, analyze or whatever. And there was too much complexity or that was too abstract to get at the point. Is that a fair way of saying it? Yeah. It's just sort of like, I don't know, just seem unnecessarily full of this hubris, you know, instead of just going, oh, well, you know, A plus B equals C, it was all, you know, like, oh, here's a 
you know, blobby shape. And two of those, if you halve them together, gives you a, a D. And then if you minus it from two, you get B. And then we plug it in back here. And it's just like, just tell me what A and B equals. <laughs> you know? But that's just my take on it. Um, so you were comparing him before, as we were talking about this, before we went on air, to Anthony Braxton. Mm-hmm. So who's Anthony Braxton? Because in my mind... I just think of a free jazz musician who plays mm. saxophone. Did he play tenor, right? Or was he a multi... Alto. Well, oh, yeah, alto. Was, but yeah, he plays all. But his main one was alto. Mm. And what years were he, was he active? Oh, he's still going. Yeah, he oh, he's still alive? At, yeah, yeah. He teaches oh. at... Uh, I can't remember where in USA. USA. Yeah. So he makes this crazy free jazz music and mm. he's got this system of how he comes up with it. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's be more accurate to say he has used a bunch of different systems. He sort of goes through phases and writes lots of stuff in that phase and then goes to the next one and etc. So yeah, he's had a lot of different systems. But what was the comparison between him and Ken Wilbur? Well, I guess the comparison that I was making to you was that, um, you know, the Braxton's philosophy, I guess, mainly draws on, you know, common language rather than inventing a whole bunch of, although he did get into that later. Um, so it's it's quite easy to see what he's getting at, even if you don't understand some of the terms. Ah, so it's um, not a sort of academic highbrow or it's not a intellectual elitism system yeah although it does get very <laughs> i haven't checked out his yeah he put out like a three three books in the 80s of his triaxiom writings but then i think he was doing some other thing called ghost trance music or something like that um but i think the other thing about his music is that it's you know as as we've been talking about it's not actually free as such um, and this is why I think he's an interesting musician because I remember reading an interview with him and he was talking about his first gigs you know just getting up and playing just whatever and yeah he he said that he just came home feeling really depressed and you know that he was like I can't just keep playing like this you know because it sounds terrible so that's when he started developing systems to structure his improvisations and then later his compositions. And the same thing with Leo Smith. You mentioned Leo Smith, but... Without Leo Smith, the trumpet player. Yeah, and I mean, he... Someone asked him in an interview about free music and he said, well, you know, I don't play free music because my music is based off systems and systems aren't free. So I think... I think... It depends what sort of improvisation you're talking about. But I think on the surface level, a lot of this music does sound like people are just doing that. But actually, like with the Antipodian Collective, you know, there's a very complex system. Oh, so the, the, an- the Antipodean Collective and Mark Hannaford, Scott mm. Tinkler, Ken Eady, uh, Phil Rex, mm-hmm. John Rogers, that crowd. Yep. I think there's a similar correlation well they do the same thing because 
Hannaford even said to me once in a piano lesson that it's all systems and it's all based on the atonal Schoenberg, late Schoenberg. Uh, Elliot Carter. Elliot Carter, that's the name. Thank mm. you. He um, has these mathematical systems for how they construct chords. Mm. And it sounds really chaotic, but underneath is all that structure. Yep. So, yeah, I think it's a bit of a... I think you can get the wrong idea just from listening to it, how it was made. Like, I guess the same with painting. You know, you could look at just something that looks like splashed paint on a canvas and just go, well, hey, they just splashed. But, you know, you don't necessarily know how it was made or why they chose that process just from looking at it. Is there a scale between how much a system affects the mechanics of music, perhaps? So, for example, if you have a number system for a chord, the numbers or the mathematical equation would be very direct in how it is affecting the music, the structure of the music. Mm. And then on the other end of our scale, we might have something more abstract or philosophical, such as I play with systems or I invent certain systems or I have a philosophical attitude which affects my, my general approach to music. Mm. And somewhere there's a scale between those two. Because mm-hmm. last time we were talking about Keith Jarrett and we talked about the fourth way mm. as a quasi-abstract philosophical process of expanding your consciousness. Yep. And George Gugiev had his school of thought, which was revolving around how to expand your consciousness. Mm. And that's a much more abstract system or approach to music rather than here's the ABC mathematical equation of how chords actually work, how chords are structured. That's true. But I, but one is a very specific music thing and the other one is about consciousness. So I think you've got to differentiate between whether it's a, a music system or a consciousness system. So hmm, but the two are very different but things. Jarrett's using, or at least that's what I try and argue, is that Jarrett's using consciousness systems for his music, I for know, his approach. But if he, if just say that he wasn't a trained musician and he was just doing the fourth way stuff he wouldn't that's not going to make him play music i don't think yeah true well i guess that's how you would know the difference you Mm. could say which one is separable yep and also uh let's not forget that uh the fourth way was a uh, fusion band with uh mike knock have you heard it no, I haven't actually never heard, heard it. it. Me neither. Right. but I really I'm, should. I'm assuming that they called the band The Fourth Way because of the... Yeah. Yeah. And like we were saying before, this was like the late 60s was a time when people were getting into all these things. You know, John McLaughlin was into his like Shri Chinmoy stuff and whatever. Who's John McLaughlin? The guitarist played on Bitches Brew and all that heaps of stuff. And what was what was he into? Maha, what did you say? Maharishni? Mahavishnu Orchestra. Mahavishnu, what's that? You never heard him? No. Yeah. Um, so um, so he, after playing on Bitches Brew and stuff like that with Miles, he formed a, a band with Tony Williams on drums and Larry Young on organ called Lifetime. And they did a couple of albums. And then John McLaughlin went off and formed Mahavishnu Orchestra. Which sort of yeah, there was a you know there was a few fusion groups that came out of the bitches brew thing. You know you had 
Mahavishnu, and then you also had um, Chikri had returned to forever. So, but everyone was getting into the religious thing a lot. So, like I just mentioned, Chikri. So he had before Return to Forever had a band called Circle with Anthony Braxton in it, actually. And you know they all joined Scientology together, and then eventually, I think Braxton says in his book, like he got to grade two or something, and he was just like, "Yeah, I can't do this." Um, and same with Dave Holland. So they they bailed. And as we know, you know, Chick Corea sort of has kept going with his, he's probably one of the most famous musicians that's a Scientologist. But, you know, you've also got um, John Patitucci, Stanley Clark, uh, Billy Sheehan. So we've got Keith Jarrett using the fourth way as a philosophy and even playing George Gugiev music. Yep. And creating music in the style of the fourth way. Mm. And then we've got Chikoria et al. and friends using Scientology as an attitude or a expression of a sort of general attitude towards making music. So it's not a specific system like Tone Rose and Elliot Carter. It's not a so it's not a music system. It's not a music system. It's a philosophy of reality or mm. a religion. Yep. To create music. And what was the other one? The Maharishni? No, no, no. That's just the name of the band. That's not a different philosophical system? Mahavishnu Orchestra. Yeah. No, it's just a band. Oh, okay. So that's not a separate thing. No. No, Okay, cool. But I think he was, McLaughlin was into the Sri Chinmoy and all that sort of stuff. I was looking up some things on the spheres of reality because I'm really interested in this idea at the moment which is where you take reality, so everything, and then you try and divide it into a few even sections or a few even parts. And you try and make it, you know, maybe two parts or five parts or three parts. So one of the things I did was I jumped on Google and I said the spheres of reality. And one of the first things that came up was Scientology. And they have this thing where they have an arrow so you have your one arrow which is reality and then you have eight mini arrows within it and one was for family one was for work one was for god one was for your so on and so forth i don't remember all of them but i thought wow this is really quite interesting how they've taken this idea and divided it into basic things and you know you see in personal development circles or self-help talk motivational speakers, guys that say, these are the basic components of your life, your work, your emotions, your relationships. And they're just taking life and dividing into smaller bits. And there's all different ways that you can do that. But I got a little bit into this idea of Scientology because Elrond Hubbard has this interview where he says, you know, someone asked him, you know, what's the idea behind Scientology? What is it? And he says, well, in every which way you look at it, we wouldn't mind just improving our lives. And this is how we go about doing it, or this is what I've come up with to go about doing it. And he's got the, um, the process of the feedback system. So you have the little machine that makes a noise, and it's connected to your sort of like a lie detector or a 
wish I had the term for it. But he's trying to combine the science of tracking how you feel in your body with a feedback machine or recording machine with your psychology and how they ask you questions, which then reveals how you feel about certain questions. So this is a similar thing to what Gurdjieff did, which was using Eastern mysticism with a modern psychology and combining those two things. So maybe there's a correlation there between Scientology and the fourth way. Yeah, well, yeah, they both had to do with music, I guess. Mm. But, I mean, you could draw the, the music and thing, um, you know, like specifically like improvised music and stuff. You know, people were getting into Buddhism and stuff like that and sort of before. But it seems like, yeah, the late 60s was when all this stuff really took hold with Scientology in the fourth way and, you know, probably heaps of other ones that we haven't heard of. Mm. Yep. I think Scientology is classified as a religion because it's giving answers to things like where do we come from, where are we going, why are we here, what's the ultimate life purpose, right? But I think as I did more research, I sort of got this inkling that it was more like a business than a religion because you they have a system which you use to improve your life and you pay certain money to reveal certain levels to it. Or at least that's the impression that I got. Tell mm. me if I'm wrong. Tell me if you disagree with me. No, no, no. I mean, I don't. I don't know heaps about Scientology. So okay. Well, we can be two non-Scientologists trying to figure it out but for yeah, ourselves. Yeah, I mean, people do pay. People do have to fork out a fair bit of money. Yeah, and that to me looks like a normal sort of self-help course, but just much more elaborate and much more in depth. Maybe I don't know. And expensive. More expensive. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can do a like a course online mm. in whatever and you pay like any amount. But it makes sense to me that you'd try and classify your business as a religion because that would be much better off for your tax purposes. Oh, yes. Got to so, be practical. And from what I know in the world of business, you take every chance you can to work out any system in any which way. Mm. I think the other big component of Scientology is the mythology. So there's a mythology side to it, which is L. Ron Hubbard mm. writing his books. And that would be the story of going into the volcano or we are spirits trapped from a alien implantation or... Mm. I don't know the details. I don't know how far it goes, but... That is the mythological story explanation of the system that they're working on. Mm. So there's a practical step-by-step -step process for improving your life. There's a price to it mm. and there's a mythology to it. And it's a religion for classification purposes. Yep. Pokemon comes to mind. <laughs> Pokemon? Yeah, because that's got a mythology. Mm. That's got a story to it. And the whole reason you buy these characters or these products is because of the story that they're entwined with. 
Pokemon is massive, man. Huge, huge phenomenon. Mm. Yeah, they should have a... I wonder if there's a Pokemon character that rules everyone and they could be called Hegemon. <laughs> Hegemon. There was a ultimate Pokemon. Yeah. In the mo- like that was what the movie was about, was this, this ultimate Pokemon that there was only one of and it was really rare to find. Yeah, right. I think, or at least I think that's what the movie was about. My memory's mm. a bit hazy. Is that like the the one Wu Tang album that costs like two million dollars <laughs> or something? There's like one po- there's one of these Pokemon and it costs like five million dollars, but it, we've hidden it somewhere on planet Earth. I wonder if you get into Scientology far enough, you find out the final information that is, you know, the one thing. I wonder what price it would be. Death. Death. <laughs> the cost is death. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that came up as I was t- thinking about spheres of reality or dividing reality was this TV show, Captain Planet. Did you, did you ever see that? I don't think so, but it rings a bell for sure. Yeah, it was only on for a couple of years in the early 90s. So you've probably grown out of kids' TV shows by then but captain planet was this guy basically looks like superman you know green pants purple underwear green hair something like that i mean yeah you you like that that appeals to you (laughs) but there was these five people who had these rings so earth fire wind water and heart and every episode these five people nice and culturally diverse got some boys got some girls got some white got some black they'd go and try and save the planet they'd try and save the world and they'd all try and do it in their own way and there'd be some bad corporation polluting the planet or ruining the environment or something going wrong and the whole world was going to go to shit and these guys were trying to get trying to win trying to break the day and it would build up into this climax where they couldn't do it And it would be like, the bad guys are winning. They're about to destroy the planet. The corporation is going to win. And then they'd realize, ah, we got Captain Planet. And that's when they'd shoot their ring into the sky. Earth, fire, wind, water, heart. And all of them in their dire moments, because they'd all be stuck in their, you know, position where they could only just reach their ring out to call Captain Planet. And then he would come forth. And then he would just kick ass. He would just be like, showtime's over, buddy. I am kicking your ass. It is, it is over. I can take care of you. And then he would win. And so that was a pretty interesting way of thinking about how do we save the planet? Well, we've got to, we've got to all work together. That's one way of looking at it. And Earth is sort of like your tangible, your real stuff, your science, your hard sciences fire well that's sort of like your passion your emotion so you've got to be emotional you've got to be into it water well that's like fluid flexible able to adapt to different surfaces change in different environments and you act differently at different temperatures so that's another component and then what else have we got water wind well wind is the thing that makes things move without you seeing them 
So when the trees move, it's the wind moving it, but you don't actually see the wind. You only see the tree moving. So that's all the stuff in the background that you don't see. So it's very different to all our aforementioned power rain, power rings. Power ranges is probably another <laughs> one where we can have this sort of spheres of reality. Bags being the blue guy. You're blue? I was always the red. Uh, who was I? I think I was black. There's a, there isn't a black Power Ranger, man. Yeah, there is. Sure there is. All right. We'll have to we'll look at, Google that. We'll do. We'll have another episode just about Power Rangers. Argument. Starting beef with the Power Rangers. But where was I up to? Heart. Heart. We've got earth, fire, wind, water, heart. So heart is the love, baby. We've got to get together and love one another. One love, baby. Yeah. And it's only until we get all these together that we can save the planet. We're not going to do it on our own. So Captain Planet knew the spheres of existence. He had the answers. We just got to do it. So what happened to Captain Planet? Oh, the show got cancelled, I think. (laughs) See, that's the, yeah. So you could have a philosophical figure like Captain planet but then you know someone the tv network could cancel it and your philosophy is totally gone down the toilet hasn't ah, it? so we have the philosophies we need to save the planet but we just don't know it. we're just cancelling them cancelling them oh what else are we cancelling uh the paris climate agreement i think we cancelled that <laughs> <laughs> and uh and and um and trump is gonna is gonna the um i think that the why cold- are you bringing up trump I mean, you can, but don't mean to shut you down. But you did. <laughs> Why are you bringing Trump into it? Well, if you let I'm me... I'm talking about Captain Planet and if Scientology. You let me finish, if you let me finish, then you would find out why. Okay, well, but maybe I will. I was going on a bit of a... Okay, I know. It's going to take yeah, me a couple of sentences to All right, in the, in the spirit of like letting everyone have their peace, I'll, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll let you say it. Well, I was just making... What has Trump done now? What has he done? Well, it's it's not about Trump. That's the thing. I'm just okay. giving you an example of the, the actual thing that I'm talking about, which is, you know, we're just saying, well, yeah, Captain America got cancelled. And I'm saying, you know, Australia wants to cancel on the Paris Climate Agreement. <clears throat> and oh. I was just saying the American leader is going to let... So the, the agreement that America and Russia had in the 80s you know, about missiles and stuff is going to lapse in the next couple of years. And so it's due for a re yeah, but wash but or the, something. The US has basically said we're not going to renew it, which oh. is bad news for everybody. So there's no more stability between Russia and America. Is that it? Well, it's no. It just means that they can go back to developing nuclear weapons. You know, at the at the level that they were before they had that, because there was a lot of disarmament that went on. With that, yeah. I mean, it's it's not really about the Russians. It's it's more about the US and China, I think, at this point. I think you're way over my head with this sort of stuff, man. But I'm these just saying, are, things, things are getting cancelled. These are, yeah, the, but like, you know, I can talk about the philosophy of a kid's program like Captain Planet in a sort of cute philosophical way. I don't know if I can deal with real, like, political issues. I'm it's not too saying, far over my head, man. Yeah, I'm not, I wasn't asking. But I, I see what you're saying. Like you've got this. I see the theme that you're weaving through it, which is cancellation. The, yeah, the cancellation theme. So, so the philosophical question is: Do we have the systems that we need, or the philosophies that we need, already? 
and we're just cancelling them. Like Captain Planet. Like Scientology. Well, no one's really cancelling that. We'll be back after these messages. What message? We don't have sponsors, man. You well, can make some up. Well, we could. Yep. Okay. Um, oh, no. We Large Productions. This this episode is brought to you by <laughs> We Large Productions. What right. is that a record label or is that a... Yes, it's a... Uh, I, I like to call it a nano label. A nano label. What's yeah. that? Um, it's a label that's very, very small. Oh, small and small independent. So For all your independent nano. producing needs see we yeah. large productions that's right who's the main producer there uh coolio disgracias okay and you can get in our listeners can get in contact with him they can and they can do a recording with him they can or they can just listen to the records that are on the label that's more likely right yep ladies and gentlemen if you want to listen to a recording go to we large productions <laughs> link in the description that's right yeah, if you want to listen to a recording, because there's not really very many of those around, then <laughs> you can find some extra ones at this spot. How many records are on that label? We ha- have released 23 you know, various like albums, EPs and singles and, and so forth. Okay. Yeah. yeah we, How many CD forms? CDs. How many in CD form? Um, not that many. These days, we pretty much just go digital, Bobby Digital these days. So they're mostly all digital? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Any yeah. vinyls? Yeah, we've got we've got um, got a few copies left of the Coolion House Mouse single that they did from the album. And cool yeah, we've got we've got the album. But yeah, the next next thing that we're releasing in a couple of weeks is just a digital single, just like a free download. Yeah. We probably spent more on the costumes than making the actual <laughs> thing. Nice. So, what were we talking about before we went on the air? There was a few other things that we wanted to discuss a bit more. We were talking about improvisation. Oh, yes, that's right. So, we've Mm. got these systems and free jazz. Mm. And we realized that there's so much of an entwinement between systems and creation that free jazz is, in a sense, non-existent. Because to be free, you must be operating within a chosen set of systems. Mm. So in one sense, you are free because you're choosing the systems. But don't delude yourself into thinking that you you are totally free because you're still choosing your systems. Yeah. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I reckon. And I mean, now that we're talking about it, you know, we are systems. And and we exist because of systems. You're starting to sound like Ken Wilber, man. Oh, sorry, man. <laughs> Let me get a hole on this conversation. <laughs> Hole-ons are Ken Wilber's term. Don't make a joke that the listeners can't understand, man. Okay. Is this like just too much irony? No, it's never too much. Is it much. possible to be too so ironic that it's just normal? Well, I think I think there's definitely a tipping point where the the binary of um, <laughs> stupidity and irony sort of come around to each other, you know. But it depends. two systems colliding. Yeah, it depends where 
Depends where you observe, where the observer is at the time. Well, well, hang on. Spooky action observant. Is there a quantum mechanics reference there? Could be. Or is that just a happy coincidence? <laughs> <laughs> like this universe. Well, it's true. I don't know. It's, uh, it's very hard to prove, though. I'm sort of self-conscious about how, like, I'm so much more of a joker when I'm talking to someone else. Because mm. all my other episodes, all my other conversations, I'm really serious. Yep. Like, I've got these really, you know, intense psychological, philosophical maps, and I really think about them, and I just, uh, you know, push them in. And then when I come out with someone else, I just want to have a laugh, have a joke, and sort of be a bit more fluffy with it. So. Yeah. I'm sort of self-conscious about what people are going to think, but that's just me, I guess. Mm. It's my own self-consciousness. Another funny thing I notice is that when we're out there on our breaks or mm. we're chilling, you know, doing our normal conversations, yep. there's somehow a funny different flavor to it than when we've got the tapes rolling in the studio. Oh, absolutely. There's a somehow a presence of some unseen structure or system that, changes the way we talk yeah. and it's the same for my solo conversations mm-hmm. so maybe that's why it's so different radio voice radio voice that's, that's where right. radio voice comes from yeah so what can we do to break free of these systems where is true freedom hmm. i guess we need to get into the flow state and forget that we've put a tape on yeah and become more concerned with the content yeah, no, but I think we are concerned and I think we should be concerned because I think really, uh, you know, the, the, the end point will be thermal equilibrium. What, what is that? I'm so confused. Well, I guess that's just when all the heat and energy of the universe has finally dissipated. Oh, thermal equilibrium. Equilibrium. Yep. Otherwise known as heat death. Heat death. Oh, so there's a certain amount of energy in the universe mm. and it's becoming less. Well. Is that the theory? Is that sort of like, you know, you have a string on a guitar and you pluck it mm. and then it vibrates out until it becomes nothing, supposedly. Yep. Is that the same idea of the universe? Well... Well, so, you know, as you put, as you and our listeners, I'm sure, uh, are aware, you know, only 5% of the matter in the universe is visible. The other 95% is stuff that's totally invisible. So black holes and no, dark no, no. matter? Is no, no, so we can, we, can, we can observe black holes. Yeah, so talking about dark matter and dark energy. So what's dark energy? So dark energy is the, you know, the energy inherent in space-time itself. So the way, the way I see... No, well, the way I understand energy is just the movement of your stuff, your matter. So the movement of your atoms and your protons bouncing around. It's your physics. So how is normal energy different to dark energy? Well, the thing is, no one really knows exactly what either of those dark energy or dark matter is. They're sort of theoretical 
ideas at the moment. So the so idea they're hypotheses which explain a set of things that are pointing in a certain direction or a set of observations that can't be reconciled. Yeah, something like that. But essentially, you know, dark energy is what is uh, driving the expansion of the universe and dark matter is the stuff, if you think of a, a galaxy as like a fried egg with the galaxy being the egg part, the dark matter is the stuff around the galaxy, around the yolk, which is holding it together and stopping Ah, so it's all the stars from opposite energy. Yes. So if there's like arrows, yep. you have a arrow going in one direction. Yep. And then there must be something like sucking against it. Mm. Okay, now I, yeah, I guess I guess I sort of can wrap my head around that a little bit. Yep. I still think it's over my head. Oh, look, I mean, yeah, Einstein sort of predicted it in his equations, but he called it the cosmological constant. And, and that's what he referred to as... So the dark energy idea has sort of been plugged into his idea of the cosmological constant, which was this thing that was pushing, the you know, causing the expansion of the universe and was working contrary to gravity, which was, you know, pulling it in. So it was something that was stronger than gravity. So there's a suck and there's a pull. Or is it... There's a, More or less. A pull and a push. Yeah, and the total, the total, the, the the both of those are equal. No, so one plays out over the other. Well, yeah, and that's that's one of the reasons why the the universe is expanding. Ah, so what happens in the end? Well, there's a few different scenarios. So one of them is the heat death scenario. So the universe just keeps expanding. We're we're lucky to be in the Big Bang era, if you like. It's warm and toasty but eventually you know all the stars will use up their fuel and will be left in in a universe full of only black holes um, eventually they too will die and will be left in a universe without any matter at all really just the dark energy inherent in the space-time itself and so that's and that's when it's you know that's referred to as the heat death um, because the universe will basically reach absolute zero and thermal equilibrium and such and such. So the, the term thermal equilibrium is the diminishing of heat well, in the cosmic sense. It's not the diminishing. Thermal equilibrium is when it reaches a temperature in a state where it can remain constant. Hence the word equilibrium. Oh, equilibrium. So, so, so we don't know if that equilibrium is going to be in a situation where our planets and stars can keep living or keep burning. Oh, we'll, we'll be well and truly gone by then, mate. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I don't really have we to were, worry about it. We're, we're going we're gonna to come and go in the Big Bang era, but the next era, the black hole era, is much, much longer. And then the, the so-called empty space era is much much longer again so we're talking some pretty serious time scales here Whoa. yeah you know like 10 to the 120 years or something like that oh 10 with 120 man. zeros this after is it blowing my mind yeah cannot even so that's that's the heat heat death oh. idea um, i can't get my head around it man i don't get it 
So the the other scenarios are the other one is the big crunch. So that in that scenario, the dark matter or and or gravity sort of wins out over dark energy expansion and manages to slow it and then the energy uh, the universe basically rewinds itself back so into the opposite the, of the big bang yep big crunch i can get my head around that though okay so that's the second one so the third the third scenario is is kind of a subset of the thermal of the thermal equilibrium one in that the universe is at the moment is expanding at a apparently a crazy rate like we're runaway expansion period so what might happen as a result of that is that if space continues to the expansion of space continues to accelerate we might find ourselves basically being ripped apart at a molecular level because space time will get stretched that much that our observable universe will basically shrink down to our galaxy and then our solar system, our planet, and then it will basically just shrink back and, yeah, you'll just be vaporised in a thing called the big rip. You'll basically be ripped apart at a molecular level. I don't think we'll be around when that happens, but that's what would happen if we were around. So it's like a combination of the two in that the parts shrink into themselves because of the expansion. Well, yeah, basically space-time is being stretched to such a ridiculous level that it's you're basically just going to be uh you know ripped apart at a molecular level Hmm. it's a comforting thought (laughs) how do you get into this man do you read books or just like watch talks on the internet or yeah i watch a lot of talks on the internet and yeah read a few books yeah there's some good uh some good materials out is this there. related to your music or is it sort of just a side hobby to your music um no i guess it's i guess it's related i don't know i get a lot of inspiration because some of your thinking. video your video clips are sort of space travel-y mm. like i've seen one where you guys are doing some space travel and yep. you're in outer space so it's connected right oh yep yeah no i've always been a space fan in fact i wanted to be a, an astronomer when i was a kid yeah oh man that would be a hell of a thing Mm. those guys do some serious training yep like i cannot even believe it yep but yeah obviously maths the maths of it was was very difficult for me so you have to be quite prolific with your maths to be an astronaut because i think it's more like a more like an athlete like it's physical Mm. And you got to be really strong, really fit, really good balance, flexible, all that sort of stuff. But how does the maths play into it? Oh, no, no. I, was, I said astronomer. Oh, what? Oh, astronomer, not astronaut. Not astronaut. No, I'll leave that to Tom Hanks and crew. You wouldn't want to be an astronaut, man. Come on. Well, it's just not what I said. Yeah, but all right. <laughs> but yeah, okay. Given the We're chance. astronaut. Okay, well... He, Given the chance, would you rather be an astronaut or an astronomer? Well, listen, if you said to me, you can study the stars from down here or you can be up in a spaceship living on, um, you know, fruits and vegetables that have been fertilized with astronaut poop, uh, you know, yeah, I would do a double take. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Would you go to Mars? Tickets for Mars are coming. No way. Why not? Well, you know, 
like I don't mind going. That's going to happen in our lifetime. The the ticket price, yeah, will be almost well, maybe not you and me, but some people will be able to afford yeah. a commercial ticket to Mars within our lifetimes. I have I have no interest in uh, either terraforming or going to Mars. It's it's a little bit too far for me. <laughs> yeah. How does maths? Yeah. I still don't understand how maths plays into it though. Astronomy or yeah, astronautery. Either. Well, I think astronauts still have to do. I don't know if they still do calculations by hand, but they certainly did it in the olden days. Yeah. They certainly had to work things out. Or on the computer, but as far as astronomy goes, well, as you know, you know, just trying to locate things in the sky and you know work out what's um, whatever it is that you're. It's based on mathematical at. systems, oh, which are appropriate to that process. Mathematical systems, and then you know, if you're studying behaviors and things like that, then you're going to get into statistics, and you know, there's a lot of maths involved. Mm. I, think. I guess we need a working definition of what maths is. Mm. I want to know you, can, what maths is. Can you answer that? I want you to show me. Oh, God, here we go. We're getting into karaoke already. Yep. Can mm. you expand for me what, what is maths? Is that too philosophically vague? Well, you know. Because it's in my... Well, the way I see it is you put a number on something and then you use those numbers to work out how the different parts relate to each other. Mm. And that's what an equation is. Mm. So if you put a number on a planet... And then put it onto a sort of scale of time, which would be numbers. Mm. Then that's your equation of working out where a planet would be. Is mm. that fair enough? Is that a close enough understanding of what maths is? I don't know. Yeah, I mean that sounds. I mean it's just a language, isn't it? It's just a a, a way of manipulating symbols to um, you know to obtain different results, I guess. We just sort of tinker around with these things to get different results that we're after. Um, but yeah, I think I think to me, I think of it as a a language a set of symbols to communicate things that you can't communicate, uh, you know, verbally. For example, mm. you know, like if you if you had to break down one of those equations verbally and go, you know, like oh, okay, look, x equals this and that, and then. You know, when it's the planet and this, and that's just the first term. So if you had to read all of that and then go like, oh, okay, that's what they're talking about, whatever. It, it doesn't really work. So that's why you have these shorthand symbols, if you like, where, you know, people that know what they are can sort of look at them and go like, ah, yeah, okay. And I guess it's a bit like music notation. You could say it's a bit like that as well. Um, mm. You know, it's a set of shorthand symbols. You know, like if you see three three notes in three different spaces going upwards and you go like, oh, yeah, I know that's a triad or whatever. But, you know, someone that doesn't know that, it just looks like a whole bunch of notes. Um, so there's that, you need that assumed knowledge. So it's kind of, uh, it's very, you could say it's quite an esoteric or sort of abstract thing really, couldn't you? Mm. Yeah, I think if we dig really into any sort of language, it's pretty abstract. Hmm. Wu-Tang Clan coming at you. <laughs> I've seen that. Have you seen that video of those guys? The poo They go swimming in shit. Yeah. Wow. What, a, what a gig. What a gig. 
One of them's like, oh, it's quite peaceful down there. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Keeping things in perspective. Definitely, man. We got cosmology and we got the shit divers. We got the shit divers. There's a band name for you, the poo divers. <laughs> I like it. Actually, that would be a great name for a super group. You could have um, Andre Ryu on violin, <laughs> Kenny Garrett on saxophone. Oh, no, yeah. please, no. Vangelis on synthesizer. Oh, my God, I'm about to puke. Um, Tommy Lee from Motley Crue on drums. <laughs> and uh, who would we have then? We would have uh, Gene Simmons, I think, probably on bass. Just wow. trying to think of the shittest rock bass players that I can think of. If you're listening, so many Gene. to choose. There's so many to choose from. It's a lot to choose from. And of course, Zamfir on on panpipes out the front. <laughs> and Akabilk on clarinet. Did I mention him? <laughs> so if you could make the shittest band from all your favorite musicians, the Poo Divers. Yeah. Poo Divers. What would be the best band you reckon? Okay, the opposite. Yeah. The the just the divers. <laughs> the divers. Okay. Well, if I had to make a super group, would you have to pick it within a genre, or you'd have any all genres? All genres. So all instruments, all genres. Yeah, I guess I want to try and with I want to try and have one instrument from each genre. Okay. That's, that's what I'm going for. So metal. So I'd probably I'll still go on them by by instrument though. So I reckon on drums. I'd have drums. Oh yeah, by t- instrument. Yeah, yep. t- Tony Allen, Tony Felicudi's band. Yeah, piano. Or would you not have piano? No, no. We can whatever instrument you name. I'll try and. Okay, piano. I can't name any extant bagpipe players, so please don't <laughs> ask me about that. But I should be all right. Piccolo <laughs> tuba. Yep. Um, okay, so we got drums. Tony drums. Allen, piano. Well, all right. We'll have to go with Keith Jarrett because we've been talking about him. Well, okay. Um, I mean, if, you can choose someone else. I won't be too offended. No, no, no. Let's go with Keith. It's got to be Keith Jarrett. Yeah. And by the way, if, if there's any copyright people from his crew listening, we're talking about a, a different Keith Jarrett. He only has one, one T. T. Yeah. Keith Jarrett. It's a bit sore. Keith Jarrett. T. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Not the ECM Keith Jarrett. No, no. This is a different no, one. He's C E M. Yep. He's on C- CEM, the yeah. record label. That's right. Okay. What's the producer's name for that record label? The CEM? Yeah. I think it's uh, Flacido Domingo. <laughs> <laughs> what the? <laughs> Flacido Domingo. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Oh my god! Oh, sorry, listeners. I think I've spooked him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what this uh, next instrument? Yeah. So yeah, vocals. We need a vocalist. Flaccido to me. <laughs> <laughs> no vocalist. I go for. I have Mariah Carey. Mariah Carey. Yeah. So we've got Tony Allen on drums, Keith Jarrett on piano, Mariah Carey on vocals. Who else? What other instruments are you going to give me? Bass. We need a bass player. Bass. I'm going to pick uh, Charlie Hayden. Charlie Hayden. Because he'll be happy to have Keith there. Yeah. Yeah, they're pretty similar. Yep. Guitar? Guitar, I would have... Frank Zappa. Um, no, nah, I think I'd have Tony Iommi from Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath? Yeah. With Keith Jarrett. <laughs> oh, Fuck, yeah. man. Well, we talked. We said we were going to mix mix the genres. So oh, I'm just trying wow. to mix. 
got two jazz guys in there. Any horns, trumpet, saxophone? Trumpets, yep. Um, on, yeah, I think Tuba, on... Tuba, trombone. Saxophone, we're going to have... Ken, uh, no, no. Oh, don't say... <laughs> no. Maybe Kenny G instead of Kenny Garrett. Oh, sorry, Kenny Garrett instead, instead of, of Kenny, Kenny G. G. Yeah. yeah, we'll have Kenny Garrett instead of Kenny G. What about using someone that's not alive? Like, you can still use Charlie Parker. Oh, yeah. No, no. Would you, you would you choose Kenny Garrett over Charlie Parker? Because he's got the modern edge. Because he is better, like, really. Uh, he's, he is better. Well, uh, depends on the tempo, eh? <laughs> the tempo. It's always about the tempo. Oh, man. No, I don't know. I don't know who... Yeah, no. That, <laughs> now you're making it too hard. All right, you say some. What, who would be many. in your... Who's There's too many. Who's in your super band? Okay, my super band. Keith Jarrett, piano. Okay. Gary Beacock, bass. Okay. Jack Dijonet, drum. Uh, is that too easy? No. Is there going to be more? Oh, no, 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 no. All right. Uh, scrap that. Scrap that. I'll All do right. I'll do an Australian one. Okay. Okay. Yep, Australian yep. one. Australian favor. With with one American. Mark Hannaford, Jim Black, the drummer. Right. Phil Rex on the bass. Yep. Yeah. Nice. And I saw that. Yep. At a jam session, man. Oh. One year at the Wanger, uh, not the Wanger, out of the International Melbourne Jazz Festival. Oh, wow. And it was the end of the night. They'd been jamming it out and it was really loose. Everyone was doing these choppy standards and it was pretty, it was just mess really by the end of the night. Mm. And then somehow someone got Jim Black onto the drums while Hannaford was hosting. Yep. And oh man, they just tore it to shreds. They just took it to shreds, man. And it was just one song, me and like five other people saw this super hot jazz at 3am at mm. Bennett's Lane at the jazz club. Mm. Man, memories. I think it was Eugene Ball on trumpet too. Oh yeah, nice. I'd like to see, I'd like to see Jim Black and Scott Tinkler play. Oh yeah. But then again, I don't know if Jim Black's really in that same sort of phase because at that time mm. he was into a real rock hardcore sort of grungy influence and now he seems to be a bit more delicate a bit more sensitive yeah i don't know what tinkler's doing i haven't heard much of his recent stuff mm. do, do you know much of his stuff oh a little bit i saw i saw um him do a duo with um so scott tinkler and Han, Han Benink at the what uh, instrument does he play he plays drums oh yeah um, at the Wangaratta Jazz Festival, and that was pretty. It was pretty cool. And uh, Sandy Evans did a duo with him as well. That was pretty awesome. I love that Simon Barker Scott Tinkler duo album. That's really good. I've listened to it so many times. There's also Scott Tinkler, Simon Barker, and Bay Il Dong, a singer, Korean singer, mm. and that's really weird. That's sort of a cross-cultural cross-genre mix that works quite well so if you have your jim black mixing metal and jazz and then you have your korean music meeting jazz then you have a synthesis which is quite good so i don't know if our super band that we were talking about before would really be quite that successful of keith jarrett and black sabbath black sabbath yeah actually yeah scratch that because I think the lineup's pretty smoking it as as it is, but let's let's um, <clears throat> let's take out Tony Iommi. 
Who'd you put in instead? I would put in uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah. There's a Roadrunner Records anniversary sort of album where they go, oh, it's the anniversary of our record label. So what we're going to do is get all the musicians from different bands on the record label to come together to make an album. And I'm sort of in two minds about it because it's sort of like it doesn't work, even though they're all from a pretty similar genre. They're all like hard rock, metal sort of things. But it just seems a bit contrived at points and a bit flat Mm. because they don't have the band energy. Yep. So, which is sort of counterintuitive because you'd think, oh, if you just get the best players from the best bands and combine them, you'd have a super band. Yeah, but it doesn't work. But it never really sort of works out like that, doesn't it? Well, I think it's just because it has to do more with personality than musicality. Yeah. Musicality. Connection between musicians. The shorthand that's between musicians. Yep. Yeah. And just different. You know, some people's loud is another person's soft and so on and so forth. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's kind of like that. We didn't talk about the Seven Dwarves yet. The Seven Dwarves, yeah. Is there a mythology insight that we can draw between super bands and the Seven Dwarves? Yeah. What? I don't know. Maybe it's got to do with that. The idea that in a bigger band, you know, each each band member is one of the dwarves. So you know, you've always got like a grumpy person in there in the you know in your touring party or happy person or the angry one maybe that's what makes a good band is having the, the different different personalities dwarves. yeah yeah because slipknot have nine members and there's nine personality types on the enneagram and they some of their albums are like you know they've got the stars of the shapes of the enneagrams what's the enneagram the the enneagram is a psychological map where you have a couple of personality traits like introversion extroversion and so on so forth and you combined a couple of them and each group makes a personality type so instead of a trait which is one aspect you have a type which is like three or four aspects and then each at each type is sort of linked to a relation to the other around this star and they even start to border off onto a Carl Jungian archetype approach, which is the roles of a character. So you have the caregiver, you have the hero, you have the leader, you have the clown, the joker, and so on and so forth. And so there's a blurring of the lines between personality traits, which would be one little action that you do, and personality types, which is the collection of your actions and your personality role or your personality identity, which is your sort of character. And then there's an even further scale for the archetypes, if we want to take it even further, which is you have a role which is sort of specific to your environment, like the caregiver or the joker. And then there's a larger archetype, which might be the mother or the hero because a mother as an archetype is trans-cultural, trans-contextual 
Whereas a caregiver might be specific to where you work or something or the team that you work on or your sports team or your or even your band. So when you're in your band situation, you're taking on that role. So you step into that archetype when you're doing band practice. Hmm. And they're all just sort of maps and models that are basically personality 101. Like if you do psychology at high school, then you might learn about the Enneagram. I guess the seven dwarves is more about emotions, isn't it? They're not traits. Or I guess That's they're right. they're more I guess they blur the line between traits and I mean when you get when you drill into any of these, there's no line between them, like a trait and an emotion. Well, no. Like I if mean, you're you're angry, that's a tendency that you have to be angry. Well, but only if it happens repeatedly. So I think I think the difference between a trait and a What's the other one you used? A trait and an emotion is an emotion could be something you feel once and then you never feel again. It could be something Oh, uh, yeah, with repetition, yeah. So it only becomes a trait when it becomes characteristic of your personality. Like, oh, yeah, there goes... <laughs> he's a grumpy cunt. <laughs> or whatever whatever the person's personality. Am I really? Per- I hope not. No, but you, you said that I hadn't said the word cunt yet, so I thought I'd say... You can't it. use the word cunt. Yeah, I thought I'd say it a couple of times, just <sighs> gratuitously. Why? I don't know. But you also said that you should only use it... What was it you said? You should only use it gratuitously. Oh. Or no. you should only use it in a way that's appropriate. Artistic. Appropriate. Well, I've already used the word cunt when I reviewed the Alcoholics. Yeah, okay. Because that album is... Fuck you, you fucking cunts. Yeah. Although well, I haven't had anyone, I haven't had anyone write in to confirm that theory yet. Mm. I don't know if Ben Hartman got my message. Okay. But if I've already said it there, I guess we can say cunt here. Yeah. So yeah, I guess that was the main reason. We should have given a warning. That's what we should have done. <laughs> a warning. So, language warning. Language warning. C bomb coming up. Yeah. This program contains C-bombs, F-bombs, and 1D. Well, actually, one thing that I haven't worked out how to do, and this is my technophobia problem, that on iTunes, all my all my episodes are listed as explicit because I don't know how to choose which ones are explicit and one which aren't. Mm. So now I figure if they're all explicit, we may as well say cunt. Okay. So feel free to say cunt. Now, what, what were you saying... When we before went off onto that, were you saying I'm an angry cunt? No, no. So I, I am not an angry cunt. <laughs> I was I was talking about the difference between traits emotions, and emotions. Yeah. So to me, emotions are something that is fleeting, whereas a trait is something that is more tangible, is yeah. more permanent. And so that, repetition. So then you, can, you you can point to certain people and say that they have certain traits, but it's very hard to point to them at at. at you know, at times and say, oh, they have this particular emotion or whatever. That's much harder to, because they sort of come and go, I guess. I should probably watch Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs now that I've got all this archetypal personality type structures of understanding. It'll yeah. probably blow my mind. I'll probably just be like, yeah. oh, look at probably. angry when he gets happy and then, oh, then dopey is being, you know, wise and, oh, yeah. you know. Like, Under oh, the thumb crazy. of the proletariat. Yeah. No, I think I think what you should do is you try try and um, sync it up to a Slipknot album the way that people did with The Wizard of Oz and <laughs> yeah, Dark Side Yeah, that might work. I reckon there's a Slipknot album that would sync that up perfectly. That would do that. Yeah. Wait, that was Pink Floyd, was it? Yeah. So how does that work? You put on 
the Pink Floyd album at the start. Uh, I don't know what the cue point is, whether it's the lion roar or something, but yeah, that's where you start the album. And you put on Follow the Yellow Brick Road. Yeah, with the sound off. Wait, what is it? The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard that's of Oz. That's it. Yep. And the there's not dialogue, is there? But it's just... No, you put the sound off. And the music matches the yeah. emotional explays of the... Oh, okay. I haven't tried it. So now I need Slipknot and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves yeah. with archetypal enneagram analysis. Yep. <laughs> in a post in a post Marxist environment. Yeah. <laughs> with Manfred Eicher as the producer. <laughs> yep. And a side helping of goulash and yogurt. <laughs> We're just deteriorating into irony and eccentrism. Yeah. The yogurt is deteriorating rapidly. <laughs> The, the vinegar from the sauerkraut is uh, does, undermining the structure. Does yogurt collapse in on itself or does it expand out and stretch to infinity? Well, if it, if it did the first thing, it would be black yogurt, wouldn't it? <laughs> so it must be the latter. <laughs> How do they know black yogurt exists? Because they can't see it, right? That's true. Because how could you see something that doesn't... Exist. Well, but look, as you know, we now have a phenomenon called Hawking radiation because Stephen Hawking proved that black holes do actually eject jets of matter um, due to, like, if you apply quantum mechanics to black holes, so so they do actually eject stuff. It's just not anything that you would want to keep. That's all. So what? Before. Uh, you you just fried my brain again. Just Sorry. you lost me at quantum mechanics. So the way let me just say what I th- well maybe what is quantum mechanics? It's just small physics, right? That's subatomic physics. Is that yeah. what it is? Yeah. It's like how things that are smaller than atoms are behaving, like Hawking's radiation, because they wouldn't be atomic level, would they? The radiation. Yeah. Um, I think it's X-rays. So are X-rays subatomic is my question? Um, yeah, this is a good question. <laughs> I you think don't know. If you don't know, that's all right. No, I'm I don't just know. trying to get my head around. Well, I imagine it's... So it's some kind of... So, you know, there's different, different uh, types of light slash radiation. And so, um, you know, you've got radio... Radio waves, you've got the UV spectrum, black light. I don't know. There's, I don't really know all of them. So I think X-rays fall under that spectrum. So it's a, it's a type of light. Um, so I guess they would be photons. So they are particles. Hmm. And, and that's the whole point of what, of what he proved is that even though the theory says that you know, black holes, black holes suck everything. Uh, yep. Yeah. That if you look at a uh, black hole, you know, via quantum mechanics, that is probabilistically, that's what I would say quantum mechanics is about. It's about probabilities. Then you can oh, yeah. see that actually it would, it, you know, they eject this stream of X-rays, which is now called Hawking radiation because he, he sort of discovered it. I don't think I can keep up with your cosmology, man. I need to do some homework. Oh, You're going to have to recommend a book to me so I can well, catch up. Yeah, if you want to, I, I definitely, if you haven't if you haven't picked it up, 
do yourself a favor, do yourself a party favor and get a brief history of time. Yeah, I've had a look at that a while ago. Yeah, it takes it for, it took me a few reads to sort of yeah. get my head around it. Um I think that's definitely a good book if you want to get your head around um some quantum mechanics i definitely recommend um in search of schrodinger's cat it's a bit of an old book right now it's an 80s book and the sequel schrodinger's kittens which was the 90s so who wrote those john gribben john gribben yep i think we should probably outline schrodinger's cat because that's pretty interesting okay do you want to outline that or well i think essentially it was uh thought experiment yeah by this schrodinger fellow Erwin Schrodinger, something like that. And um, so basically the thought experiment involved having a cat in a box and the lid of the cat, uh, sorry, the lid of the box, (laughs) the lid of the cat, another good band name there, folks, Um, (laughs) is the lid is hooked up to uh, a gas dispenser dispenser that's got full of poison gas poison or something that so as soon as you open the box the the cat will die right but so the the thought experiment is something like this until you look in the box to you the the cat is in a neither dead nor alive state until you open the the box so, so it's getting at this probability issue. Yeah. So he was, so Schrodinger, my understanding is, yeah, he was, so he developed like a wave equation for these probabilities. Um, I don't know much more about it than that. So what is In Search of Schrodinger's Cat? Is that the exploration of this probability conundrum? Um, well, not really. It's sort of like those two books are like a, you know, potted history of quantum mechanics and just, you know, the, the concepts as they come along, he sort of goes through them. Um, but is it written in layman's terms? Yeah. Yeah. It's, okay. it's pretty funny actually. Like it's, so there's a bit of humor in there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, they're pretty accessible and it gives you a good, good sort of overview of like who, who did what and you know, what the main things are because a brief history of time was meant to be accessible right and then most people were just like way over my head i mean for me it was way over my head oh yeah no me too compared to what hawkins normally like when he's in his academic world that's just like a whole nother different Mm. language that you can't get three sentences into you were telling me about another one of his papers that you were trying to get into yeah so i i uh, i was curious to read the, the last paper that he worked on before he passed away with his um, collaborator. And, um, yeah, so I downloaded it and tried to have a read, but it was just, yeah, it was literally, you know, there was like five or six equations on every page and just talking all this stuff. I had no idea what they were talking about. So I had to tap out of that paper, unfortunately. Stephen Hawking's genius through confusing us. Mm. Wow, man. I really want to watch The Seven Dwarves again, man. Yeah. Can I play one of your tracks? Sure. How do you pronounce the first track on the album Wonderlust Meets Simon Millman? 
The first track is Caracas. Caracas. Oh, so it's a Spanish name. Because yes. it's a Spanish song. And what does that mean? Uh, it's just a city in... Well, it's the capital of Venezuela. And what does Renida de la Pel... What does that mean? Reina de la Pileta. Yeah. Uh, means queen of the swimming pool. Um, and that's the album cover, is it? Yeah. So my godmother painted painted that. Um, but yeah. You're South American, are you? Yes. Como well, estas? Muy bien. ¿Y cómo estás tú? Muy bien. Gracias. Ah, chévere, chévere. Sleep not forever, Ming. <laughs> um, no, seriously. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, because my mum did heaps of swimming when she was in high school and she's got all these trophies uh, in storage somewhere. But one of them said, but said Queen of the Swimming Pool. That's the trophy that she got. I just thought that was funny. So This is a fucking good album, man. Oh, thanks, I've dude. heard this. Thank you. Good sound quality. Wide variety of tracks, mm. styles. So there's a bit of jazz, a bit of bossa nova, a bit of Latin. Good compositions. These are all your compositions except for a couple. Mm. Some are what? Oh, just one. One is traditional. Well, it's, yeah. And it's, it's actually with a red hot band too. Sorry, go on. Tell no, me no, about no. this traditional no. song. Well, it all it is actually is, but I think the joke was a bit too obscure, but I just thought it would be funny to do a very radical reharmonization of Cold Chisel's K-San and just play it fairly straight. Uh, and But then it just sounded fairly different, so I decided to call it Sketches of Damper. But everyone that I played it with, I said, can you guess, like I, I wouldn't tell them what the Cold Chisel, can you guess what song this is based off? And everyone was like, no. And I thought it was glaringly obvious, but obviously not. But that's what it is. It's K-San. We've just really changed the chords. This is a red hot band, man. Miroslav Bukowski. Yes. Bukowski. Bukowski. On trumpet. James Greening on trumpet. Jeremy Sorkins on guitars. That's right. Did I pronounce that right? Yep. Guitars. Alistair yeah, Spence good. on piano. He's a fucking good piano player, man. Mm. He's red hot on the scene. Yep. Fabian Heavier on drums and percussion. He just gets heavier and heavier. <laughs> Did you really <laughs> just say that? <laughs> and Simon Millman, our very own... On the bass. That's right. Yep. In the studio. In the studio. Simon Millman, thank you so much in Radio Voice for coming on. Oh, thanks for having us, Andrew. And um, the spirit of Ray Parker Jr. is looking down on this whole recording session. We've got way too many cultural references. A lot of cultural, cultural references. And the problem with having a lot of them is if you, you might fall down a hole on. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be back soon. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Have a beautiful day. And we'll leave you with... We'll leave you with Wonderlust meets Simon Millman playing the tune Caracas. Thank you so much. Thanks, man.
You don't mind degrading your music to MP3 form? Nah, man. I'm all about degrading. <laughs> Speaking of which, I'm yeah, I'm degrading. I think we should. Yeah. I think we degraded about forty minutes ago. Well, that's all right, man. It's better to record more than less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. This What's the song on? Yeah, did you listen to it? No. I don't know if but I want you're, to... You're looking at it again. Though. I'm looking at it. I want to know what's the song which says um, home on it. Home. He's singing about home. Doom. But, but home. Something like that. I think it's Undertow. Undertow. Undertow is the one that goes... What about Crossing the Border? Oh man, these these. Oh man, no. Why? Because man, it's you're on there. We were we were having a good time when we recorded it. It was a good recording, but I was in a pretty. Yeah, I know you were. I was like, pretty rough, messed up at that time. I was like chain smoking and not sleeping at all. You were very like nervousy. I was really yeah. Yeah, and I did, I pretty much didn't know how to play music anymore. <laughs> uh, 